0: Uh, First, if this is your first time, my name is Ricardo, I want to introduce myself and one of the pastors here. Um, Second is I have some important things that I need you guys to write down or at least take a mental note. Now, normally what happens is someone comes up here and does announcements and you say, I'm not going to listen to announcements. Um, Listen today, all right, especially this service and next service. First, next Sunday, which is the 22nd, we're going to wrap up our series and then we are only having services 9 a.m. and 1045. Okay, so that affects you. If you normally go to the 5 o'clock or the 7 o'clock, you can show up by all means. Just no one's going to be here, right? We're only going to have services at the 9 a.m. and the 1045 next Sunday. Now, two days after that is Christmas Eve. We're also going to have our Christmas Eve service. We're going to have service at 5 p.m. and 11 p.m. So it's 5 p.m. and 11 p.m. That's at night for some of you guys. Um, Hence the p.m. So 5 p.m. and 11 p.m. Most of you guys, we encourage you to go to the 11 p.m. because that 5 p.m. service is going to be slammed. And the 11 p.m. service is usually our most fun service because we go all the way into the night. Santa shows up. It's a lot of fun. Brings gifts to everybody. So 11 p.m. to see you guys there. Now the following Sunday after that, the 29th, we're only doing morning services. 9 a.m. and 1045. And so that's kind of what we have um, for the services, they're here. If you didn't listen to me, go ahead and go to redemptionaz.com, and they'll be there. Little thing I wanna to talk to you about, the Christmas Eve service. We're gonna do something that's pretty unique, uh, something that's new that we haven't done, and that is intentionally do a Christmas Eve service uh, talking through the gospel, mainly the true story of the whole world. And the way this came about is we were in our planning meeting talking about one of the most famous verses in the Bible, uh, recognized verses, is John 3:16. And I realized I've never taught through John 3.16. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm asking you all to invite anyone you know who wouldn't normally go to church who wouldn't normally trust in Jesus, uh, who wouldn't normally be around to show up because it's gonna be a great opportunity for us to tell the true story of the world in one verse, and that's gonna be on Christmas Eve. Again, that's 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. There's gonna be very limited childcare for those services, and so what I've told everyone is, bring your kids inside the service. That's totally fine. Um, it's okay for me while I'm teaching to be listening to babies screaming and yelling. They're actually more responsive than you guys are, so that's a good thing, And if for whatever and one of your kids were to end up on stage while I'm preaching, that's fine, I'll have lift. I'll make him baby Jesus or a donkey or something. We'll figure it out on the, on, on the spot. So hope to see you guys there for that. That's all I have for a time of announcements when it comes to some of the details things. The last three weeks, we've been talking about our Advent offering. And our Advent offering is something that we do here in Tempe every year is that at the end of the year, we raise money for something outside of our local congregation. And so this year, there's three things that we're raising money for. Uh, the first thing we talked about a couple weeks ago was China, and that was supporting financially church planting uh, pastors, Chinese church planting pastors in China. And then last week, we mentioned the Rio Vista Center. The Rio Vista Center has been an organization in a service to the South Mountain, South Phoenix area for years, and they're gonna be starting one here to minister to the least of these, the poor and the homeless and our city. And they're gonna be starting here in Tempe, and we wanna be able to help financially get them off the ground. And then today, the thing I wanted to highlight is the redemption, foster care, and adoption. A couple months ago, we had Robert Gelinas come and teach here with us uh, from Colorado Community Church in Denver. And he taught from the passage, James chapter 1, verse 27 which said that true religion is this, is that we seek after, look after, and care for the orphan and the widows. we looked at the the situation in our own state, our own country, in the world, of the crisis of the thousands, and literally around the world, the millions that are without families, that we believe it's the call of the church, those who trust in Christ and believe in Christ, to be able to come alongside those children and provide homes for them, And particularly homes in which they can grow and understand the good news and the love of Christ within a family. And so many of the family members and people of our own congregation and all the redemption at the other congregations have stepped up to be able to be a part of this. And so the Redemption Foster Care and Adoption Fund is to have resources to help for training, to help for the administrative costs. And then more importantly, those families who will not only take from the foster care system, but those who are going to adopt privately, either domestically here in our own country or overseas. Those who would go through the training and are qualified would be able to have uh, some money to offset some of the costs for adopting children. And then for those of us to be able to help, those of us who are not called, at least at this moment, to adopt children that come alongside of them. So those are the three things. Church Planners in China, the Rio Vista Center, and the Redemption Foster Care and Adoption. Next week will be our offering. That's next Sunday, 9 a.m. and 1045. Uh, We'll do it like we normally do our special offerings where there'll be uh, the offering boxes will be in the back like they normally are. But when we do a special offering at the end of the year, we'll have baskets that go around and everything that goes in those baskets will go towards those three things. We'll divide it and give it to those organizations and ask God uh, to bless it. And so if you're not gonna be here next week, best thing you can do is either do it now or you can go online at redemptionaz.com and you can give online um, if you want to do that way as well, so here's what I'm gonna do now. I Ask you guys to stand up with me as we pray for the kids that are in the foster care system, and also for those families here in our own congregation that are coming alongside uh, people and adopting and whatnot. And then I'm gonna ask you to remain standing for the reading of God's word. So would you bow your head with me? God, we thank you so much for the work that you have done in your Son Jesus, in which this season remember that He did take on flesh and He came into this world for the sole purpose to be broken and for His blood to be shed that we may be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to you. But God, even more than that, we know that Christ came in order that we may be adopted into your family, which you've given, given us the Holy Spirit to understand that truth and to know that and to be welcomed to, to you as a good God and as a good dad. And Lord, as an implication of that, as people who are loved by you and into your family, that we would love others into your family. And Father, I pray for those kids in our own state, Lord, that are sitting in the foster care system, waiting for families to love them, to, to grow them, to to discipline them, to love them, to celebrate with them as families. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with them and you provide many families for them throughout our state, not just only in our congregation, Lord, but throughout the state of Arizona. God, I pray also for the families here in our congregation that are, that are listening to that call and are taking their place, Lord, in adopting families, that they would also have help and support of the many other families and singles and individuals here in our own congregation to come alongside them and pray with them and to help them, Lord, raise their children. God, we thank you that you have invited us into your family. We thank you that you've given us Jesus. And as we turn to look to your word, Father, we ask that you would continue to bless us and guide us, encourage us, and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, will you please remain standing for the reading of God's word.
1: Good evening, Tempe. Today's scripture is from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. They danced in darkness, spoke and speak in time, announcing the advent of sun's first dawn until rhythms ruptured and images shattered. We felt and feel this weightiness. The burden of the funeral of our fall, felt in everything, adamantly insist not the way it should be. For smiles, gaunt lives, we yearn, ache, and strive towards unseen horizons of hope. He arose, instantaneously stepped in time. Now, in a blink, everything changes. The wind waves distant trees instinctively. They will have a purpose. We perceive something intuitively. Remember that which was spoken and promised from old. This long-awaited instance of sun-kissed earthworms, fresh morning skies behind mountains of burdens and layers of lies, God, now, in flesh, Here to bear weight, creator in creation, incarnate this now, this instance, this moment in time, in flesh and blood, all glory and power and all amens and thank yous heartfelt, all love and logic and life all hope and praise, all that is and was and will be the epitome now, here, now, this day, the arrival, angelic proclamations, good news, joy resounds, true and pure, here, now, the triumphant King has arrived as a baby born in blood and pain and rumors of sin, much like each new day much like his glorious sunset finish. With a father's future hope and mother's final push, he arrived. Tiny hands reaching out, hands once the crafter of trees and beasts, hands that would be stretched out, palms wide open to embrace us, the least of these born in weakness, strength perfected in humility. Such was the paradox of his life, Creation blinded to Creator, eyes still adjusting to the radiance of love In death, life found in Him. Insistent Savior in suffering instituted a new commandment in everything to live as this for all human beings, nails inserted in place of our judgment previously proven, one selfless sacrifice instead of all, pure blood spilt, one death to erase the funeral of our fall. Unknowingly death lap too soon. That Saturday, Satan's pride and joy held. Unaware what Sunday sunrise had in store. Love, born as a baby, hung on a tree, rose from the dead. We rejoice with the dawn of that sweet truth illuminating every dark corner and every low valley, every unspoken night and tear-stained pillow. By God, the glorious dawn of forgiveness forging within us. Freedom-filled praises and joy-resounding songs join with all creation. We can't help but sing along. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow. Far is the curse. Is found.
2: He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. When watching that poem, we should feel the weight of Advent, this unique season that we're in. That once a year, we get to celebrate the coming of our king, the return of God as a baby, and look forward to the future day when he returns again. And we long for him. And this Advent series has been a rich series for for me. It's been one of the best Advents because of the content that we're going through and the topics we're addressing and it is a privilege to be able to speak on this third week and lead us in Advent in this day. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is really an honor to be with you on Advent. This Advent series is sort of unique, it's kind of like a tale of two cities. We're talking about one city. We're thinking about Bethlehem. We're thinking about this little obscure city where God entered our world in the flesh. And reflecting on all that Advent means to us. But we're also in the book of Colossians. And we're, and it's in many ways connected to the city of Colossae. Which you can find in the north, uh, sort of the northwest corner of what now is Turkey. It's a city with a, with a big hill, and it's a unique place. Everywhere you go, you would find these idols, these gods that the people would worship in that day. And Paul is writing this letter maybe 30 years after Jesus had died. And this letter is to help this small Colossian church, which was known for its love for Jesus and its love for others, It's to help them be faithful in a world of many idols. And it can instruct us today because we live in a world of many idols. Um, Week one of the series, Ricardo talked about what it looks like to long for a Savior whose power is greater than that of sin. And then last week, we had the privilege of Mike Goheen coming here and and talking about what it looks like to long for a Savior whose salvation is as broad as sin. And then today, I get to focus on what it looks like to long for a Savior who can unify and reconcile all things. We've been in Colossians, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. And that's part of a broader book of Colossians that really is serving this small church in 62 A.D. Now, what was this church like? What were the idols that they were encountering? Well, they lived in a Roman world which had these little statues that you would find all over the city. And people would worship those statues, and not just symbolically, but they would build whole systems of life and patterns of life based on those idols that controlled their philosophy, their ethics, the way they lived. You'd go to one side of town, you'd see Epaphrodite, the goddess of sex. You'd see Hephaestus, the, the god of technology. Mars, the god of war. You'd go to the other side of town, you'd see Pluto's, the god of wealth. Bacchus, the god of pleasure. And all of these idols, all of these gods, these false gods that they had, were united around one deity, and that was the deified Caesar, the leader of the Roman world who put himself up as a god. And all, all of their lives were united around the power and strength of Rome. There was this idea, this idea of the Pax Romana, that peace and flourishing would spread throughout the world as soon as Rome could conquer the whole world. And that peace came through the military strength and might of Rome, even if people had to be sacrificed in the meantime. In the book of Colossians, you think it's this nice, innocent book, but it's not. It's subversive. In that day, it steps up to the power of Rome, and says that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Colossians 3.15, right at the end of the book, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And it puts forward this idea that the peace of Christ is greater than the peace of Rome. And that Jesus is greater than the powers in that area. And the book of Colossians speaks to us as well because it speaks to us of a reality that Caesar is not Lord. The powers are not Lord. These gods are not Lord. But there is one Lord, Jesus. And that peace comes through him. Today I really only want to make three points. The first is that Jesus is more powerful than the powers. Second is that Jesus is the creator of all things. And third, that Jesus is the reconciler of all things. He's more powerful than the powers. He's the creator of all things. And he's the reconciler of all things. Let me pray. God, I, pre- I ask that you would prepare our hearts just to feel the weight of your glory. And that your strength is greater. Than any of the other forces that are kind of pushing in on us you are king and you alone our Lord and we pray that you would gain ground in our lives and our hearts this evening and that we would sing these Christmas hymns anew we would sing them to the one who is supreme over all Jesus and it's in his name we pray amen the first point Jesus is more powerful Than the powers. See, in this text, in Colossians, it talks about the rulers and authorities. Other translations would call it the powers. Paul talks about these powers in a few other books. In Romans, he says that the powers can't separate us from the love of God. In Ephesians, he also talks about resisting the powers. And what is he talking about here? Well, it goes back to that idea of the idols that were in the city and the systems that were built around them. We know that there is only one real God, but what we do is we take created things and we all corporately, sinfully make, make idols out of those things and create whole systems of life and philosophy based on those things. And that's what the powers are that Paul's referring to here. Now, what are some of the powers that we encounter in our day? We're not dealing with the, uh, you know, Mars, the god of war, and Aphrodite, the god of sex. But we do encounter the powers. One example would be consumerism. We've talked about this at length. But is it wrong for us to buy and sell things? No, absolutely not. Is it wrong to have a coupon and take advantage of a deal? No, go for it. But when we create whole systems of life around consumerism, it not only is a shame because it's worshiping something other than God and orienting our lives around something other than God, but it wreaks havoc in our life. When we trample each other in malls, and when we have crippling amounts of debt, and when we trade human eye contact for an iPhone and an intimate relationship with Siri, It's not a good thing. We're in some trouble. (laughs) And when we create whole systems of life around consumerism, it doesn't just stay in the mall and the things that you purchase at stores, but it extends to other aspects of life. Take, for example, friendship. Consumerism is affecting our friendships deeply. We often trade in Old friends for new friends, like an old flip phone or like an old car. We don't have a lot of deep connections with our friendships because we're starting to, and we're starting to view people as products. As people, uh, other people, we use them. If they can give us goods and services, they will be our friend. But as soon as they're not helpful anymore, we'll move on. It's very subtle, but it's very prevalent. And a society that has friendships that are structured around consumerism does something very dangerous. It begins to push people that are weak out of the way because they can't offer you an experience or a service or a product or some way uh, do something for you. And that's very tragic because that means that we're pushing the elderly, the sick, the weak, those with... with um, learning disabilities and and mental illness to the side. And we push them away because we don't want to see them because we need to move on to bigger and better people. The friend 5.0 and there's no use for them anymore. And that's a tragic thing in society. And you, you hear of a lot of countries that are talking about laws to actually put the sick and the weak and the elderly to death. Because in a consumer world, they're not good products. But people aren't products, they are people. And when we sit with the weak, we get an opportunity to encounter Jesus because he hangs out where there is suffering and pain. But in our society, one day we're not all going to be as healthy as we, as we maybe are right now. And we too might be on the margins viewed as an old flip phone that someone has traded in. And this consumerism wreaks havoc on our life, but it has power and it grips us. We can also think about it in the area of service. Now let me tell you this. I am really, it is a privilege to be a part of this church and to serve people like you. Because when we put forward service opportunities, you guys respond, and I'm really encouraged by that. You respond well. Even if it is only 298 turkeys out of the 300 turkeys we were going for. But you guys respond. And it's it's an awesome thing. But what I've noticed is that even when we serve others, serve the poor, when we serve outside these walls, consumerism is creeping into that as well. I can't tell you how many times I get emails from people who say, hey, Jim, look, I really, really, really want to change the world. But I need to do it, maybe, I've got one hour available on Monday nights. If you can help me out, give me a good opportunity. I'm a really good public speaker, just put me in front of hundreds. Um, You know, make it something that's very meaningful to me. Give me this customized service opportunity as if it was something on a menu. And we see that quite a bit. We see people, when they begin to serve for a while, quit after a few months, when the initial, the initial excitement wears off. And consumerism begins to get its tentacles in all aspects of our life where we just begin to view everything in the world as products or services to be consumed. And yes, it has to do with our individual sin, but it also has to do with the bigger, broader, systemic powers that are promoting this worldview and this way of life. Think about pleasure, that's another one of these powers. Consider how many women and men deeply love each other, yet sneak away to some dark room every week and turn on uh, some pornography. One out of every eight web searches is looking for pornography. There is something that's bigger than just one, our individual sin that is systemic and is getting its tentacles in us. Think about this. Even the person who is fighting as hard as they can to avoid sin, is praying, is, is put all of the software you know, Bill Gates could ever come up with on their computer to block porn out of it, you still have to drive around and see the advertisements of photoshopped women created in the image of the idol of pleasure. And it it affects us. It affects men by fueling more and more of a desire for that thing which isn't even real. And it affects women as well. When they they see that, when women see that, they often uh, see that it communicates this message that you have to be so tan. So unblemished, so curved, that women end up spending billions of dollars and thousands of hours to look like this fake photoshopped person on a billboard. And it basically creates this world where everybody is just fervently seeking pleasure or desperately trying to become more pleasurable. Pleasure is a good thing created by God. But when it becomes this ultimate thing that we build systems around, it crushes us. It enslaves us. And we also see this with technology. Think about uh, how technology has shaped our lives. We're surrounded by technology, and we rarely get a moment, a moment of rest without some glowing rectangle giving us some random useless information, right? I was in a conversation yesterday. I kid you not. A deep, solid conversation with a good friend. Actually, the guy who was doing the poem right there. And we started talking, and somehow it came up that we didn't know which root root beer came from. And it detracted our conversation, and we were on our phones in that little Wikipedia race to figure out which root it came from. And it distra- detracted from our friendship, and we just didn't even realize how much technology can just creep in. By the way, don't look it up on your phone now. It's a sasperas plant. If you're curious, don't worry. Um, that's where the root beer comes from. But it interrupted our connection there, and technology's around everywhere. And technology solves a lot of problems. It's good. I like it. But there's only so many apps and so many juicers and so many different things, aspects of technology that you can create. But it can't solve the deep and hidden places of the heart. Technology can, can be a, a system that is created around this idol that can enslave us as well. But it's a good thing, just not an ultimate thing. All of these things are fighting for your allegiance and my Allegiance. The Colossian church, you can imagine, that felt themselves on a slave auction block. And we, should, we feel ourselves on a slave auction block where technology and sex and power and politics and all these things in the world are bidding for us, bidding to own us, bidding for our allegiance. And they want to get their tentacles in us and make us theirs completely to be enslaved to them. And these systems, these powers are way too powerful for you and I to resist on our own. We're doomed. It's just a matter of who we're going to end up with. Unless, unless someone steps in who has more power and a greater currency than they do and can purchase our freedom who can purchase us away and save and rescue our life. And Paul and I want to tell you that that person is Jesus. He steps in with more power, with a greater currency, with a greater reality, and steps in and purchases our freedom, not with something that can be found in a wallet, but with his very life that he pours out for us. And the book of Colossians talks about how it is through the cross that Jesus breaks the back of the powers and gives us our freedom and our life and transfers us into the kingdom of the Son as children of God. Jesus is our freedom. He is the one who is more powerful. And that is why Paul puts forward these verses that we've been reading over and over again. Verses 15 through 20 are actually a creed, a hymn, kind of like a poem that the church would memorize to remember who Jesus is. And Paul inserts these words into the arena of idols to say who is really the more powerful one and who is the true Lord. So I just want to read these over you. I want them to just seep into your soul and let you know who is the one who is supreme. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This passage shows us a Jesus who is supreme and above all things, above all of the powers. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It says the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And so if you want to see God, if you want to encounter the power of God, a power that's greater than all of the other powers, we need to look no further than Jesus. His power is so great that he can actually create things. I mean really create things from nothing. This passage says that he's the creator of all things. And by implication, that means that all of the powers ultimately get their power from Jesus. He's not just stronger, but he's the one who gives them their strength. The reason why sex is powerful is because Jesus made it. The reason why technology has power is because Jesus is the one who made metal, electricity, all, and all the natural laws that technology needs. Jesus is the one who actively holds the world together, and he's the one that we can turn to with a greater power than that of sin. See, Jesus is more powerful than anything, anything in nature. A hurricane to him is like a, a draining bathtub compared to his power. President Obama, George Bush, Vladimir Putin, Ronald Reagan, choose whoever your politician is. All of them are like pens that sit on his desk that only have any power when they are in his hand. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. His power is greater than that of consumerism. You could probably go anywhere in the world and find either a Coke machine or a Pepsi machine. I've traveled to multiple countries, I can confirm this, everywhere I've gone, Morocco, China, Israel, they all have one of the two. India and Pakistan have some tension between each other, so one of them chose Coke, the other chose Pepsi, but all over the place you can find these. Consumerism and the American brand has kinda gone everywhere. You might be able to find those in every country, but let me tell you this, that there is not one square inch of the world that Jesus does not claim as his, as the Lord over, and he is the one with ultimate power. So therefore, if we find ourselves being gripped by technology, by sex, by politics, by these things that are begging to enslave us and to orient our lives around them, the way that we get away from them, the only way we can walk away from them is if we run towards Jesus the one who has greater power, which leads me to my second point, that Jesus is the creator of all things. Now, it's important that you don't misunderstand us. The last couple weeks, both myself, uh, Mike Goheen, Ricardo, we've all talked about uh, some of the negative effects of these idols of consumerism and technology and those sorts of things that are so prevalent in this season. But you must understand that these at their core are not bad things because Jesus created all things. It says says in uh, Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. God created a wonderful world. Jesus created a wonderful world that is filled with good gifts that should be enjoyed. They are not wrong. They are only wrong when they become ultimate things, when they lift themselves up over Jesus, or at least they try to lift themselves up over Jesus and have our lives orient and and have us orient our lives around them. But ultimately, at their core, when they are under the lordship of Christ, these things are good and should be enjoyed. If you walk through Genesis 1, you will see time and time again that God speaks over his creation and says, it is good. And so we shouldn't disagree with God. We should enjoy his creation. And what's interesting about this verse here is it doesn't just say that Jesus created the raw material of this world, but it says that he created thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. In other words, he created the powers. He created all things uh, at their core are good when they are in their right place. So we've talked a lot about consumerism. But is commerce bad? Think about this. No, it is a good thing. It is an important part of our world that allows us to live in interdependent relationship with our neighbors. It's a part of God's created world. I'm glad that the photographer who was our wedding photographer purchased a camera and that they didn't just draw stick figures to tell us what our wedding was like or someone took notes. No, it was nice to have someone who bought a camera. That was good. Helped us remember that. I'm glad that that a farmer... You know, maybe buys a shovel or a tractor or something. That's a good thing. And I'm really glad that all of us at some point in time went to a store and purchased some clothes. Because it would be pretty awkward in here if none of us did that. Commerce is not a bad thing. It's actually extending some grace to us in this moment right now. Think about other good gifts. Sex. Sex is a good gift from God. When you have sex, you get babies, and it's pretty awesome. Thank you, God, for sex. (laughs) Technology. Technology is a good gift. It's a good part of God's world when we take the raw materials of his world and cultivate them and create good things. How many of us know someone whose life is being preserved because of some sort of technological advancement? It's good. And how many of us would actually live in Arizona if there were no air conditioners, right? No, technology is a good thing. But a technology in, in, in sex, in politics, and commerce, they're all p- part of God's world and they're extended to us as gifts from a loving God, but gifts can be abused. I want you to imagine a Christmas tree and under that Christmas tree there's a gift for a son a father is giving a gift for the son, and based on the way it's wrapped, it's very obvious. It's a baseball bat, but the son plays it off and tries to pretend he doesn't know what it is and that he's really surprised when he rips it open. The father gives a good gift of a baseball bat to his son, and he has intentions for that. He wants his son to go out. He wants him to have a good time playing baseball with his friends to learn how to really swing a baseball bat, to get some exercise, to connect with others. And every time the father goes to that baseball game, he's just delighted to see his son use that baseball bat. It's the son using the good gift from the father in the right way. But can you imagine if that father came home one day to find that his house had been busted up by that very baseball bat. That family portraits had just been shot across the room and broken, glass was everywhere, holes were in the wall. The table uh, had big dents in it. All the things were scattered around the living room because the son went on a rampage, hitting things and breaking things with that good gift that he gave. And then he looks down the street and the son has the baseball bat and he's threatening the neighbors and he's threatening the other kids. The Father would be mortified. That doesn't take away from the fact that that is a very good gift. But what it says is that that gift is being used in a heinous and horrible way. And that's what we do with God's good world. We take His good gifts and we just beat each other with them. We take the good gift of politics and we smash the world, leaving shards of injustice. We take the good gift of technology, and we smash marriages through pornography. We take the good gift of knowledge, and we beat people until they feel so low. We take the good gift of language, and we swing our words with such force that they take the knees right out from under people. We're taking his good gifts and we're breaking things and it's left a messed up living room of the world where there are shards of brokenness. The world we live in is one where truth is stifled and women are raped. Where, where some people in parts of the world go hungry and in other parts of the world we kill ourselves with how bad we make the food. This is a world that is filled with dictators and lupus and insufficient funds and death threats. Boredom, pornography, 10 hour video game binges, car accidents, school shootings, and a bunch of other garbage that needs to go away. It's broken. It's like that living room that, we, that the sun busted up. We've busted up this world. And we need to ask the question, Who's going to come in and fix it and mend which is broken and make things right? And just as that father may go in and clean up the mess that his son made, God comes in and cleans up the mess that we make, fixes what is broken. He's the one who does it through Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here in Colossians, and that is what we need. We need someone to come in and fix it and make it right. Which leads to the third point. Jesus is the reconciler of all things. Verse 19 and 20 say, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The world is tangled up and messed up and broken, but this says that there is one who is a reconciler who's come to reconcile all. All things. And what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is when there's a change in a broken relationship to make things right, to put things back in the right place. And that's what God does through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. He puts relationships back in the right place. He reconciles us to God so that we have this spiritual relationship that's restored. He reconciles us to one another so that we are reconciled with our neighbors and he reconciles our relationship with the physical creation. That's what happens when Jesus comes in as the reconciler of all things. We, we feel this and we sing this in our Christmas songs. You know, I used to hate Christmas music, especially church songs, because my parents would make me go to church once a year and it was Christmas time. And they thought it was just like for some reason Jesus was going to just like put them into heaven because they showed up every once in a while. And so we would come at Christmas and we would sing these songs. And I remember walking away thinking, these songs have nothing on Power 92. Like that's, that's awesome. And if you get that reference, that means you lived in Arizona in the 90s. But... I didn't like those songs, but then when I came to know Jesus, those songs took on a whole new beauty. And now I can barely make it through one, one opportunity to sing without being moved to tears by these songs. And my favorite lyric of all Christmas songs is from Joy to the World, where it says, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And that's what is happening through the reconciliation of Jesus, that his blessings are flowing everywhere where there is brokenness, and he's fixing and mending and reconciling. Now, this has a future dimension and a present dimension. There's a theologian by the name of George Ladd who talks about the already not yet of the kingdom. He talks about how there's a future day of the kingdom that we're looking for where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more brokenness, none. There won't be anything wrong anymore. There won't be healthcare websites that don't work. There won't even be healthcare problems. Your knees and ankles will be fine because in that day, Jesus will restore all things. But what this passage is alluding to is that it's not just a future event, but it actually points to an event that happened in the past, which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus, meaning that it's not just a future day that we're waiting for, but we can live into the reconciliation of Jesus and have that be a part of our experience in this day. We do not have to be enslaved to these powers that, that are disorienting and disturbing God's good world. We can enjoy them in their right place. But we do not have to be enslaved by them. We can live in freedom from them. As people reconciled to God and to each other. We can seek pleasure without it being ruled by it. We can spend money and save money and even give money based on the generosity of Christ. We can use technology as a blessing to others and don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to flee from it. We don't have to, like, move up in the mountains and build a little hut, but we can use it with moderation and as a blessing to others. We can love those in this world who can't offer anything to us and make fairly bad products, but are beautiful people made in the image of God. We actually can engage in church life here where we don't look at each other as potential for goods and services, but look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, making this place not a mall, but a place where God's kingdom can be glimpsed. So you may be asking, what does it look like What tangibly can I do to live into that reality, to really experience that reconciliation, to experience a life that that this passage is talking about? Well, I'm going to give you one thing. The book of Colossians, which I'll I'll just say it, it is my favorite book of the Bible. I love Colossians. But I think my favorite book of the Bible is actually any book of the Bible I'm currently reading. So. But right now, Colossians is it. There are many things that it says, but there's this one central theme through Colossians that I love, and it's this idea of subversive gratitude. Subversive gratitude. Gratitude sounds kind of benign, but let me tell you, it is not. It is quite powerful. And it's this theme through the whole book. Paul enters the conversation in Colossians in the very first uh, few verses, to, you know, thanking God for the Colossian church. In verse 12, he thanks God. He, he prays that they would be people who are thankful to God for delivering them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. In, verse two, uh, in Colossians 2.7... Paul says that one of the central aspects of walking with Jesus is to be abounding with thanksgiving. And then in, verse, in chapter 3, you hear Paul putting forward this, this potent verse about all of life being all for Jesus. In verse 317 where he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Giving thanks to God the Father through him. That we're called to do all of life, all for Jesus, and be people who are just walking around giving thanks all of the time. Now, thanksgiving is not benign. It is powerful. But I didn't always think that. You see, I actually married into a family of people who are obsessive about writing thank you notes. I mean, they write thank you notes for thank you notes. It's, it's crazy. It's a, little, it's a little wild. And it threw me off at first because I, when we got married, I had to write a thank you note for everything. Um, but there's something about the discipline of saying thank you that shapes and changes our heart, especially when we're saying thank you to God for some aspect of his creation. And it's bold and subversive because what it does is it undercuts the mentality of this world, which on one hand wants to say things like technology, sex, politics, that they are ultimate and that we should orient our lives around them. On the other hand, people wanna say no, they're bad and we should flee them. But when we thank God for things, when we thank God for the awesome crepes at Crepe Bar and we we thank God for how beautiful Tempe Town Lake is and when we thank God for the good time that we had with some friends and when we thank God for how, how enjoyable a good book is, it does something amazing. It makes a bold declaration that these things are good. They're not bad, they're good because they're created by a generous and loving God, but it says those things are not God, that there is only one God. There is only one God and one Lord, and that is Jesus, who's Lord over all things. And if we become, if we really want to be a unique community that shows the kingdom of God, the f- one of the first places we can start is by being a community of subversive gratitude in a season that says you just need more and more stuff. And when we do that, our hearts will be shaped around the truths of Colossians, that Jesus is more powerful than the powers, that he's the creator of all things, and therefore they are good, and that he is the reconciler of all things in this messed up world. Let's pray.